Blog Talk Radio. Aw, cats. Jump back and dust off your Cadillac. You're listening to Respect for Life with your host, Brother Leroy, on the Keys Network. Blog Talk Radio, baby. Act like you already knew. Ow! Tonight is dedicated to giving some ideas to parents 
on reading materials and those reading materials relating directly to achievements of black men and women in America, foremost on our minds is Granville T. Woods. And those of us who use public transportation in the major metropolitan areas or going between towns and cities and states throughout the U.S. use the train, well, trains in America and other parts of the world would not be as effective as they are without the third rail. Here to tell us about the man who invented the third rail and other inventions and the brother who has also written a book on this brother who has created the third rail and the roller coaster is brother David Head, formerly of New York, now of Detroit, Michigan. God bless you. Thank you for joining us, brother David Head. Oh, I'm glad to be here once again, Brother Leroy. I'm delighted. Brother David, share with us your work as a, a member of the Metropolitan Transit Authority here in New York, and you coming up with the idea, one guy coming up with the idea to do some research and project the Randall T. Woods uh, person to the public in New York and now national. Right. Well, uh, so many times, so many stories, African-Americans have been left out uh, of the American conversation. We have made great contributions in all areas of society. And uh, there's a new saying called STEM. It's an acronym for science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's nothing new. Uh, under the sun with African-Americans. And since we came to the shores of North America, we laid the foundation for all these major cities like Boston, New York, Philadelphia. Uh, we played a prominent part in uh, all type of technology. So when you're dealing with communication and transportation, uh, so many of our uh, contributions have been left out in our children's history books. They go to school and they don't get full understanding of who uh, their ancestors is and the contributions they made, and that's not a good thing. So it's important that we take a responsibility to tell that story in one way or another. So you're working at, a few years ago at the Metropolitan Transit Authority, which is called MTA, New York City's MTA, and mm -hmm. what was the genesis? What was the catalyst for you putting together research on Randall T. Woods. I seen a documentary. Uh, initially, I joined the TW uh, Black History Committee in 1991, and I found a purpose in my life. I was able to release uh, some energies that lie dormant in me, and I began. I love to write, and I love to. Uh, I love history, so I started writing something every year for our rank and file for our annual Black History Celebration. I seen a documentary that spoke about transportation in America, and they failed to mention one iota uh, contribution regarding the African-American side. And that was totally left out, and I was uh, very upset about that. I, I decided to write something called The African Presence in Transportation that year, and lo and behold, what I found out would make us proud. In there were many pioneers, one particular man uh, a very special inventor was Granville T. Woods. 
And what made it, what made them stick out so much is that during that time they were speaking about the New York City Subway Centennial, which was built in 1900. In the year 2000, it was going to be a centennial year. So of course they're going to speak about the pioneers that play a prominent part. Once again, our contribution, particularly Granville T. Wood's contribution, was left out, and I decided to do something about that. I was decided to take on the responsibility to. Uh, Get Mr. Granville T. Woods recognized and acknowledged by the top officials. And uh, my dream basically became a reality in 2004 when the MTA opened up the Subway Centennial Celebration with the Granville T. Woods Subway Centennial Exhibit. And that exhibit was displayed throughout the MTA for a whole year. And then they made uh, 4 million Metro cards, which uh, basically oh. said. They made four million metro cards. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. With uh, Randall T. Woods honoring that individual. Right. That's right. That metro card it states this self-educated African American inventor made subway travel possible in New York City when he invented the third rail conduit for railway cars. Give us the significance of the third rail. What What's that all about? The third rail is a conduit, electrical conduit system. New York City was in a transit dilemma, and they was trying to go underground. They tried the, the, the elevated trains, and that was a, a, the sparks. It was very noisy, and a lot of people in the city didn't really want that. It took away from the beauty of New York City, and they wanted to go underground. Uh, the surface was... Uh, with too much traffic on on the surface, uh, back and forth, and was too many. Uh, that at that time they didn't even have cars. There was wagons. Uh, there was there was something called omnibuses. That was basically a horse-driven omnibus, and uh, it was a maze. It was it was just a traffic dilemma. You know, going from point A to point B, and so they needed to go underground. And they needed to go underground with an electrical conduit system because they also had uh, the cable system, and the cable system couldn't go underground. And that broke down very often as well, uh, as well as the overhead conduit system for electric railway cars. During the winter times, those systems would break down, and the city would be somewhat in a, stand, in a standstill, and the businesses would lose money. What that electrical conduit system did that Granville was invented was was able to uh, go underground with an electrical power uh, to go back. People can go back and forth to work. People can go out. Uh, and uh, it was utilized 24-7, uh, constantly being utilized, and uh, it didn't disrupt anything about the city. What, what it did, it was, made, it was able to uh, make transportation more efficient. And not only that, people can travel that was in, that was further outside the city because most of the people originally was downtown Lower Manhattan, but people started mm -hmm. to move further out uptown to the Bronx and Brooklyn and so forth. So with that conduit system, was able to let people allow people to travel further out of the city, and that's how basically the city really began to grow because people could now feel more comfortable about living outside the city and getting back to this, uh, back to work in a proficient, efficient manner back and forth. 
So that's the, the, the third rail conduit system basically is New York City lifeline. When that third rail shuts down, New York is at a standstill. Mm. And and in terms of your developing a display and et cetera for the the black, uh, what would, that's uh, part of the union of the uh, TWU, those black workers. I guess that's that's how you. Uh, um, I'm guessing now was that was that how it was done? The black workers within the TWU Transit Workers Union. Well, you 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 were talking well, about developed, able to get me. When you developed that first display for Granville T. Mm-hmm. Woods as a part of the Black History Month. Okay. Uh, no. What happened was that uh, I was able to get an audience. Virginia Fields, she was the borough president of Manhattan. Roger Toussaint was the president of the TWU Local 100 at that time. And through those two people, very powerful people at that, and the uh, MTA Office of Civil Rights. They have a, a, a department that deals with civil rights, and I was able to connect with them when I initially began the project, and I kept them abreast. And they assisted me in organizing my material, and they was able to, all those three factors, I was able to get an audience with a gentleman by the name of Paul Foranges, who was the vice president of corporate communication within the MTA system. His office is, is is on one floor, and right down the hall, right next to his office, is the MTA chairman. And so, mm-hmm. I was I, I was I, when I was when I was able to get, he gave me a call, and he wanted to know. He asked me, "Was my name David Head?" I said yes. He said, "I heard you was doing work on Mr. Woods." I also said yes. He said, "Come to my office, and I like to see what you have." Through the grace of God, everything was completed. The research was laid out properly in a very presentable fashion. And mm-hmm. that took a lot of time. It took a lot of money because nobody gave me any money. I wasn't doing this. I was doing this all while I was working. you got to bear that in mind. Nobody was mm-hmm. giving me, well, you can do this, Mr. Head, after work. You don't have to come in today. No. I, I, took, I, went, to, I went to Columbus, Ohio. And I found uh, some information about Granville T. Woods' personal life, letters that he wrote to his niece. I found some information uh, in Cincinnati regarding where he began his inventive career, some information regarding there, the different libraries, Hamilton Hamilton County Library, where he lived at. Uh, He lived in Hamilton County. I also was able to find some things regarding that he was a Mason in Cincinnati as well. A lot of people don't know that Granville T. Woods was a Prince Hall Mason. And no. uh, yes, and he what? he was a builder of mine, this brother. He was a builder of mine, and he was truly an amazing man and very well connected within the African American community and somebody to be looked up to and held in high esteem. Uh, he was very, very, very confident man. When he spoke, people listened because what came out of his mouth, he was able he was able to articulate on the subject matter regarding his invention and a very, very uh, uh, appealing factor. And it stood out even among the white press when they spoke about him. They always said he's very well posted on the subject. So at that time, during the 1880s, we were just coming out of the Reconstruction period. It was Reconstruction period that time. 
And a lot of African-Americans was not even educated, more or less knew about electricity. Here you had a, a black man, and he was very black at that, who was able to not only uh, conceive an invention, understand what a problem is and try to solve it from an engineering point of view, not only from a mechanical engineering point of view, but also an electrical point of view, and able to see a problem and able to find a solution. By drawing a sketch drawing, making those sketch drawings into a workable model, taking that workable model out in public, his first invention that he put together regarding wireless communication, he uh, presented that on New Year's Day in 1881. It was cold outside. He just came out in his neighborhood, and it was called uh, Over the Rhine, and he presented that. And he must have been able, he must have described the invention to maybe a hundred people because everybody's going to come up and say what is that? So he took the time out to explain that that information to them and articulate that very precisely. And he had five he he improved upon each model. He had five models, and each of those model models he had the audacity to go out in public all throughout Cincinnati, different areas, and showcase that that invention. And he did that for two purposes. One was to uh, – he was seeking people to assist him to financially put the invention on the market. It was a commercial invention whereby if you see – it, it showed that it was, it was a viable commercial invention. So people would invest in an in a uh, invention like that. So he was seeking financial support for venture capitalists. In addition, he utilized that for documentation. When other people, other inventors were claiming his, claiming that invention, he could uh, show that he had demonstrated that invention through different parts. And uh, a lot of times it would be in the newspapers as well in Cincinnati. So uh, he was truly an amazing man uh, during the, the infancy of the electric age. And he went up against Thomas Edison with that invention, the induction telegraph system. Uh, and who he had claimed an invention similar to Granville T. Woods, and he won that case twice against Thomas Edison, the great Thomas Edison, who had resources, capital. Uh, he was very well connected, and he won that case by showing the patent examiner that he was the invention, the inventor, the prior inventor, and he died, he had witnesses to. Uh, to back him up, he had 14 witnesses that collaborated on that, people that was uh, all walks of life, engineers, engineers, wait, waiters, uh, lawyers. He had a hmm. slew of people that, uh, uh, was, that supported his efforts when he went up against Thomas Edison, and he had a great patent, uh, patent attorney named, named Louis M. Jose, who was a Civil War hero, and uh, eventually would, would become a judge. And uh, he didn't see anything about color distinction. He knew that he recognized Granville T. Woods as a, a very, very knowledgeable person, and he wanted to make sure Mr. Woods received that invention over Edison, and he took on Edison's lawyers, and Mr. Jose was able to support Mr. Woods, very formidable in those cases. And he... Uh, mentions that in a newspaper article in 1886, and uh, mm. we want to give him that uh, credit for assisting him in that endeavor. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest on the line is Brother David Head. 
He is the author of a new book on Granville T. Woods. We're talking about the roots of that book, of his coming to the point where he produced this book, and uh, the impact that his research has had beyond himself. We're going to start first with the workers at the MTA. What, if anything, uh, feedback when you began to to pull together this 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 research and then get the get a display, which subsequently went to the point where it's a part the the Randall T. Woods contribution to the transit was part of the subway centennial. What was the impact, the visible impact, if any, on black MTA workers that you came in contact with or the exhibit who saw the exhibit? Well, I became a, quite a celebrity. I was in the Daily News, the New York Times, Newsday. Uh, I, I was on the calendar. Uh, they gave me the month of uh, August. I was the uh, – they have a new state honor roll, and I was number one in the New York City Transit on the uh, honor roll for New York State. So I, I received a lot of prestigious awards and the publicity, publicity regarding uh, my efforts. Uh, and uh, uh, it was really uh, very enjoyable. Uh, a lot of people are driven by finances and uh, funds, but I basically wanted to get Mr. Woods acknowledged because he deserved that. So many of our people are left out of uh, the conversation when they speak about contributions made in, uh, in American society. And uh, I felt uh, we must uh, take on that responsibility to get our people acknowledged and, and let the young people know, on not only black people, but all walks of life. Uh, sure. Coming uh, into David, America, Indian people and so forth, they all should know the contribution that our people made. Right, but the, the question is, the feedback that you would have gotten if you did get feedback from the black workers, your co-workers? Oh, the black co-workers, everybody congratulated me. Uh, they told me to keep up the good work. And that was most of our brothers and sisters that have a conscience. They were saying, brother, you did a great job. Keep up the good work. So what I did, I went out to uh, Coney Island, and I uh, that was where he demonstrated his electric railway systems. There was two of them, and one in 1892 and one in 1893. The, the one in 1892, the company that, that they had formed tried to steal his inventions. He took them to court and, and won that case. So I wanted to go back to Coney Island and do something for Granville T. Woods. So I worked along with Community Board 13, and I was able to get a street named Granville T. Woods Way. So if you come out of Coney Island, which is the last stop on the D, F, N, and R train, I believe, that is known as Stillwell Terminal. Right across the street is known as Granville T. Woods Way now, and that's an ideal spot for that uh, for that uh, script name for, for, to acknowledge Granville T. Woods and Coney Island, his contribution in modernizing uh, transportation. And beyond that, I was able to get him inducted as well in the Hall of Fame in Coney Island. Granville T. Woods invented the first electrical roller coaster, known as the figure eight roller coaster. And if you do your homework, you'll see that the first standard electrical roller coaster was known as the figure eight. They don't use that terminology now. But uh, the reason he called the figure eight, because, of course, it looked like a figure eight. It looped in and it looped out and he electrified it. 
So when the kids go to all these amusement parks, let them know who the father of modern rail, uh, of modern rail transportation is, as well as uh, the, who modernized the roller coaster. And also, he was the first one to put wireless communication on the railroad as well. Truly an amazing man, uh, Graham T. Woods. Then I was Why able to do a documentary and, 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 and for Graham T. Woods in 2010. With the support of the MTA, they have an entity called Transit News. And uh, if you go to YouTube and click on Graham T. Woods documentary, you'll see that documentary. And I won a, a, a bronze telly award in 2010. I'm very proud of that. Okay, the the time right now is uh, I'm, I'm looking at a couple of things. One, a couple of questions to ask you based on what you shared with us. Just to clarify, the roller coaster is one of the things, as far as Coney Island is concerned, of Granville P. Wood's contribution. What was that other piece that you were able to get his name, uh, a street a location named after him? What was that contribution? What was that transit con- contribution there? That contribution is Coney Island is the home of modern transportation. When Granville T. Woods demonstrated his electric railway systems in Coney Island, that was the precursor of the third rail. He had a, he had a third rail that ran in the, between the tracks. That was the first third rail that he put together. And that third rail was moved to the side of the track, which is, un, which is underground of the train station uh, and the subways today. So that's the home of modern transportation. So I felt that if any place Granville T. Woods should get uh, a street name, okay. that would be the ideal place because a lot okay, of people didn't even know where, that. That was where it was first demonstrated. The third rail was first demonstrated. Oh, yeah. It was first demonstrated in Coney Island in 1893. Okay. But, yes. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen. And I have all have... that information in my book, by the way. And all that well, information is in my book. book. David, we're going to get to your book, brother. We can't, we're going to get to your book. We ain't okay. that interview yet. Ladies and gentlemen, we have some announcements coming up from the folks who support the fact that you have a Keys 107 network. And just in terms of the audience, in terms of talking about his book, we had to give a background. It's one thing for somebody to pop up and say, I did a book on so-and-so, but it's another thing to get an appreciation for the background, the the roots, the roots of an idea and the fact that here's one guy, one man, and there are many one-person startups for an idea and for a movement. And that's another lesson coming out of Brother David Head's uh, effort to bring Granville T. Wood's contributions to the world. So we'll be back after these announcements over the Keys 107 Network. Please play very close attention to them. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet, now found in paperback, sporting a five-star 
fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cuffed shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Don't forget to visit moon107.com. I'm Brother Leroy, ladies and gentlemen, back with you on the Communicators Respectful Life segment of the Keys 107 Network, heard here on Blog Talk Radio, Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Our guest online is Brother David Head. He's the author of a new book on Granville T. Woods, an exciting inventor who has contributed much to not only the American way of life, but to the Earth's way of life in terms of transportation, safely transportation. Our number here is 213-943-3618-213-943-3618. Hit 1 on your telephone keypad, and that lets our engineer know that you have a question for Mr. David Head of Detroit, Michigan. So, Brother David, your book on Granville T. Woods. Tell us about that. Well, the name of the book is Granville T. Woods, African-American Communication and Transportation Pioneer. Uh, the reason I call him, uh, he was a pioneer. He was a tenacious pioneer. He had, a, uh, uh, he had vision, and he stepped out into the unknown where many other people would dare tread. And Granville T. Woods, when you're talking about uh, communication, I feel to mention that Granville T. Woods invented uh, the telephone transmitter that's used in telephones uh, for so many years, and the Bell system bought that system. Uh, it, that system basically would eventually go out when the electric telephone came in uh, that's used today. But if you go to YouTube and look up Adam West, physicist, he speaks about Granville T. Woods' contribution and communication. Mr. Woods also invented the first uh, communication system on the railroad that deal with audible communication. He had something called the telegraph phony, which, act, with act, with, which acted like a telegraph and a telephone combined. And that's why he, call, he coined that name, the telegraph phony. And the, hmm. the Bell system also invented that device too. So when you're talking about Granville T. Woods being a pioneer in transportation, please do not leave out communication because he was a communi- communication pioneer first. Hmm. Okay, the book. Describe the book to us. The Gramercy Woods book is an illustrated book for young readers. I, I Basically, what I've done is utilized my 12 years of research to illuminate Mr. Woods' life, to validate it, and also to capture an inspirational saga of trials, tribulations, and triumphs. It encompasses uh, the moment from the moment he was born. To, the, to all the way through his life, throughout his life, to the moment he died, 
He was born in 1851 in Columbus, Ohio. And if you go on 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 most of the uh, on YouTube, on on Wikipedia, any information regarding Graham Woody Woods, they'll say that Graham Woody Woods uh, was born in 1856, which is incorrect. That is not true. And uh, in 1910, he almost died uh, in Potter's Field. And I bring out some information regarding who assisted him regarding that uh, and how he was buried properly at uh, St. Michael's Cemetery, and uh, which is uh, which is right over there in uh, Astoria, right over right over there by LaGuardia Airport, St. Michael's Cemetery. Uh, Scott oh. Joplin is also buried there. So it, it, na- it navigates his life through different periods. You you got to understand that Granville T. Woods was born in 1851. So that was pr- during antebellum times. The Civil War didn't even begin. So mm-hmm. when uh, he got a job at 10 years old, he was in 1861, when the war was in, uh, uh, country was in turmoil, he was basically learning from a blacksmith. He was in a blacksmith assistance. And so uh, he laid a foundation in a railroad shop utilizing his hands. And uh, he had a marked mechanical ability. And mm. he, he, while other people was going to school, he learned from a very object, objectable learning uh, base by utilizing uh, principles of math, to calculate math, to build a tool, to repair a tool, uh, and he learned to read through a, 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 a blueprint, which is put together by a mechanical engineer. So it was from, it was from a very objective point of view. It wasn't like teachers were t- telling him about reading and writing. He had to learn that from, he learned that from professional cra- craftsmen. Those was his teachers, and through trial and error, he began to. Uh, Learn more about that, the mechanical engineering. He became a mechanical engineer. So his his uh, learning came as a practitioner throughout his life. He basically learned through hands-on operatives. And when other people was going to school, these engineers at a later date, they couldn't compete with Granville T. Woods because he was basically a protege of the industrial age When with these professional craftsmen that he was le- able to learn how to build a train, repair a train, basically from the ground up. So he had a head start when you're dealing with trying to invent something that was uh, applicable uh, to be utilized in a practical sense in everyday society. He basically had a head start uh, over somebody that was trying to learn through a book, and that's the problem today. Right. We're talking about uh, uh, theory theory learning, versus practical, hands-on learning. He had hands-on learning. Right. So he knew the jargon. He knew the intricate parts of of a mechanical device, of a machine, of the railroad. And he utilized that when he, uh, if you go to his inventions, you uh, go to online, you can basically get those inventions, put his name and you can go to those inventions, and if you have an invention, you have to have a specification, which is to explain what the invention is all about and a drawing. And if you begin to look at some of those specifications, you can see how he's able to articulate the mechanical as well as the electrical components within the invention. And you can see this man was far above his contemporaries. 
And that, that's why he was able to maneuver and beat individuals at the game of, of who's got the real product and whose product is it. That's how he was able to beat Edison and others who were trying to uh, take his particular inventions and claim them for their own. Now, how did he yes. get the book? Well, uh, you, you can go to you, you can get go to Rose Dog Publication book orders. Go to Rose Dogs once again Rose Dog R O S E D O G uh, Publications, and you can order the book from them online. And also, you, so, you can also go to Amazon Kindle. You can also go to Amazon, and you can also order it uh, online too on Amazon. And once again, the name is Granville T. Woods, African American Communication and Transportation Pioneer. So that's www.rosedog. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Books. I'm sorry. Give the website. www.rosedogbooks.com. Okay. Uh, All right. Very yeah. Good. It's I in wanna, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, once they go to the to the website, then they you know, they'll they'll be able to locate whatever state. But that's that's where they go. Rose Dog Books. Rose right. Dog And they can also you... call me. <laughs> okay, go ahead. They can call contact me by email or phone. I'll give you my phone first. Area code nine one seven five one seven one seven seven zero. I'll repeat. Nine seventeen five seventeen one seven seven zero. My email address is D as in David, L as in Larry, H as in Harry, Foundation, D-L-H Foundation, at nyc.rr.com. Okay, give that again, my brother. D-L-H Foundation at nyc.rr, like double R, Robert Robert, dot com. Okay, and the telephone number once again. Nine seventeen five one seven one seven seven zero. And the age category that this book is targeted to? Basically from sixth grade all the way up to college. All right, beautiful. And what's what's the you're you're doing a lot of work in Detroit in terms of going yes. in and out of schools, et cetera. Share with us the the type of work you're doing and getting the information about Granville T. Woods to the students and also in the process of getting your book accepted by teachers and, and whatnot? Well, uh, basically, uh, the Charles H. Wright Museum is like the Schomburg in New York City. As a matter of fact, the Charles H. Wright Museum is the largest African-American museum in America and most likely in the world. It's, it's, it's in Detroit. And I am very connected to the Charles H. Wright Museum they have embraced my book. They have uh, compensated me as well as integrated my book into their new permanent exhibit called Inspired Minds, African-Americans in Science and Technology. You can go to their website and see that exhibit, you know. And uh, Granville T. Woods is definitely one of the inspired minds. There's, it's a, a comprehensive exhibit. Now, they have something called an educational, ongoing educational programming. I've come up with something called Sign Saturday, and I reached out to some engineers and educators to formalize a team to uh, 
facilitate Science Saturday. And we have uh, some hands-on activities relating to science, technology, engineering, and math. We have also have a component called Meet the Scientists. We have professional uh, scientists come out. We had a, 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 an African-American uh, brother who has a Ph.D. in nanotechnology. He came out about two weeks ago to speak about that and that field very proficiently. And uh, we also allow students who are very innovative to showcase their ability to other students. So it's a three-prong uh, uh, component uh, program. And uh, I'm also a tour guide for the Inspired Minds exhibit as well. So I'm very connected with uh, Inspired Minds, and uh, we are reaching out to a lot of organizations, schools, uh, youth organizations, and educators, and even the private sector that have a strong uh, uh, devotion to STEM technology and initiatives, hands-on initiatives and projects for the youth. This endeavor of yours has put you in contact with a lot of super, um, well, this is my term, super skilled individuals, male as well as females, blacks as well as other uh, ethnicities yes. in terms of science. And um, yes. uh, you're, you're a little guy on the totem pole, but in doing this research on Granville T. Woods, it has gotten you into a lot of circles that otherwise you would not have been in. That's, that's, that is so true. The key thing for anybody, whatever you want to do in life, in whatever field, you must get involved in that field. You can't stay at home and wait for it to come to you. You must take on the onus and, and become dedicated in getting involved finding out what's going on, joining organizations, supporting them, and giving back. Uh, that's what I call it, give back, invest to inspire innovators tomorrow. We must take on that responsibility as African-Americans to get our kids involved in engineering. And so much emphasis put on sports and entertainment, but engineer can you can be an engineer up until you're 80 years old. And uh, it's so much more rewarding, and the pay skill is very, very good. And there's so much opportunities in that area as we go into the new millennium. And it's important to get your children involved in that. And my last uh, two questions are, are these. One, you said that Granville T. Woods was a builder of minds. Expand yes. on that. Well, Granville T. Woods, uh, as a mason, that's one of the uh, things uh, they, they, that's one of the things they uh, promote uh, to be a servant of the people. They want to serve their community and the capacity of utilizing their minds to educate, especially educate the youth. And he started an electrical uh, program and way back in 1885 when he having, was having problems with Thomas Edison. He still had to, uh, uh, he took on the, uh, the responsibility to, uh, to, to engage youth in that field because he's seen the importance of it and uh, to get the kids involved in that uh, in electricity at, at, during the early stages of that. And who could, who could really be a better teacher than Granville T. Woods, who really was a master mechanic. He was a proficient in electrical engineering, truly an amazing uh, inventor. And uh, 
most of his inventions, he was self-educated. So it's very important for, to promote uh, kids to get to start to study. Put the, put the TV things down and all this YouTube and games away. Get the books out. Or you'll go online and learn about uh, educating yourself. Uh, to become a doc, a PhD, a, a professor, uh, you must study. Put things down. Put the right things in your hand to empower yourself. And through, through comprehensive study, you become to get more knowledge in that specific area. He was always reading. There's articles in my book that shows that he was always reading and he was experimenting. So he was constantly devoted to his field. He didn't have any children. He was dedicated in, in doing what he was doing. He was married twice, but he basically educated himself. But today we don't have to do that. There's schools in place. Take advantage of that opportunity. Don't wait for it to come to you. Uh, you. you must go to it and you'll be rewarded for that. Excellent. Now, now, part of this, the question in, in terms of his focus on the youth, were there any protégés who, by name, we can look at today, or was that traceable when you did that work, did the research? Uh, once again, Adam West, he's a physicist. He did something, he did something with communication, and uh, he invented many uh, technical devices that we use today regarding communication. And, uh, uh, wait a minute, Adam, Adam, Adam West was inspired by Granville T. Woods? Yes, or he, he speaks about that. It's a five-part five episode on YouTube. His first episode, he gives, he gives homage to Granville T. Woods. And uh, pay attention that, to that. Uh, okay. So, uh yeah, and who knows all the other people. There's so many kids that write books reports about Granville T. Woods. Once you begin, touch this man's president, presence, you know that he was a very special man relating to engineering, uh, mechanical, electrical. Mm -hmm. that was, that's very, very useful in our everyday society. That third reel in New York City, General Electric bought that third reel in patent. Not only one of them, but they bought five third reel patents from Granville T. Woods. And so okay. that invention is still utilized today. It still resonates today. And so that's a very important thing. Once people begin to look at his life, it, 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 it basically he's still a, a, a significant part in our everyday life today. And this man was born in 1851. Okay. Brother David Head, the author of the, once again, give the title of that book on Granville T. Woods. Granville T. Woods, African-American, pioneer in communication and transportation, a must-read. And your telephone number? 917. 917-517-1770. 917-517-1770. And you'll be able to reach Brother David Head get an idea on how you can implement um, programs on Granville T. Woods within your school, within your church, within your masjid, within your community center, and exactly the impact that it's had on other students, what it's motivated them to do, both males and females. Brother David Head, want to thank you very much for your contribution, your work oh, in the past, truly present, amazing. and future, my brother. 
<laughs> I like to say I come out as Grandma Two Woods in costume, and I call it a view to the past with a focus on the present and future. And I have a, a doctor, Terrence Dillett. He comes out and brings out the significant contribution that African Americans made today. Excellent. And uh, that's at the uh, Charles Wright Museum in Detroit. Yes, but we will travel to New York. I do have a vehicle, and I know how to get there. I'll come out with the whole Granville T. Woods project, the Subway Centennial, the Street Prop Sign, the Granville T. Woods documentary, and my book. <laughs> Excellent. All right, my brother, I want to thank you very much. May God continue to bless you and your family. Thanks so much, Brother Leroy. All right, peace. And ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for our next guest, Brother Dennis Speed of the Lyndon LaRouche or the LaRouche Political Action Committee. We're going to be talking about current events, events that folks may be aware of, but not the significance of them because the media is not going into the significance of various things that are happening right around us, right in the news. You listen to Bloomberg Radio, you hear something, but they won't elaborate on it, not while you're listening. But we'll be right back after this music break and this announcement break. We'll be right back with Dennis Speed. The Keys, unlocking the doors to unlimited possibilities. All right, ladies and gentlemen, our guest Dennis Speed is right here with us. Brother Dennis Speed, thank you for joining us on the Keys 107 Network. Well, as usual, I happen to be happy to be here. Once once again, we are happy that you had the time to take out with us because every time we have engaged you in conversation about current events, you have not only talked about current events, but you put us ahead of the news. So the question to you is, what are some things that are going on in the news, some things that we see, and what are some things that are going on that we're not being told about, meaning they may be on uh, Internet, they may be in the Wall Street Journal or a European paper, but not foremost in the papers and the TV news, et cetera, that we're exposed to. What's going on? Well, you know, at one point, I think about 25 years ago in 1988, Tracy Chapman, in her first album, has a song in which she says, don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper. Hmm. And her, she's, making, she's making the point, which is obvious, that sometimes revolutionary developments are occurring right in front of you, and you don't know what they are. Last Friday, a United States senator by the name of Tom, Tom Harkin from Iowa and uh, previously a presidential candidate, some people will know him in that regard, uh, put a bill in, bill, Senate Bill number 985, 985, which explicitly for the first time uh, in the United States Senate calls for the reinstatement of what is called the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933. Now, I think some people are familiar with what this is, but let me tell you what, why this is a revolution in a whisper. What you have is the following. The United States has the only financial system in the world which is 
actually, according to the constitutional law of the nation, controlled by the people of the United States through the Congress of the United States. That is, although people today believe the banks are the, if you will, controllers of the, of the system, that is not true. The control of the system officially, according to the Constitution of the United States, Article 1, Section 8, lies with the legislative branch of government, that the legislative branch has the right to issue credit, to print money, mint coin, so forth and so on. Uh, now, some people who are sticklers for the particular language of the Constitution will tell you, well, it's not precisely as I said. But in fact, the United States, at the point that the Constitution was written and was then ratified, created a national bank. Alexander Hamilton created the first national bank. And that bank was not only found constitutional, but in the period after 1790 when the bank began uh, and then when it, the charter was renewed back in 1816, 1817, the battle began, its opponents, the opponents of the national bank, also agreed that the bank was constitutional. I'm saying this because the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States is not the National Bank of the United States. It is a private entity with a private board of directors and is not the representative of the government of the United States. Now, what Tom Harkin did last week when he said, let us reinstitute a law that was there for 66 years, it separated uh, speculation from uh, uh, investment. For example, you have a paycheck. You work for your paycheck. Well, your paycheck should not be controlled in the same, be placed in the same place in a bank as the stock portfolio of a hedge fund dealer or hedge fund dealers who run stock portfolios uh, and which what they're speculating with. That what happened in the case of 2007 and 2008 was other people's money was used by banks and had been being used by banks ever since 1999 to make massive fortunes, and people knew nothing about it. And when they ran into trouble, then the claim was made that if you don't bail out us, then you go down. And the entire country had a gun put to its head in which what was said was, we can't let the speculators go down because we'll go down. Now, this is not the case, and it wasn't the case in 2008. So the Harkin introduction of Senate Bill 985 is extraordinarily significant, and you won't hear anything about it. And the reason it's extraordinarily significant was that there was already a bill in the House of Representatives um, actually, twice there was a bill. There was a bill uh, that was reintroduced by Marcy Kafter of Ohio. Uh, uh, that's House Resolution 149. And that House resolution uh, had already called for the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall, the separation of speculation from investment. But until you had something in the Senate, it didn't mean anything. That is, unless you could actually put a proposition in front of the Congress as a whole, not merely the House of Representatives, you could not get action to reinstate Glass-Steagall. 
Now, here's why I'm so excited and why people should be excited. If you try, if you try to reinstate Glass-Steagall, what will happen is you will create the biggest economic revolution since probably the time of Jesus Christ. And people don't know why that's the case, but I'll explain it very simply. You know, they, they, they consolidated the world's financial system through globalization. And there was one financial system. Basically, the United States dollar was the front for that. But it wasn't really the dollar that was the financial system. It was the financial control over credit. And that's what we saw coming out of London with the famous London interbank overnight rate, the LIBOR rate. They talked about this a lot last year. That's what, it was one expression of this process. That it's not money. It's the control of credit. And the control of credit is how you control all nations, all populations, and all transactions of any level. That is what Glass-Steagall breaks up. It breaks up the entire control that has been practiced by a set of banks, primarily out of London, with subsidiary control in New York. London's first, New York's second. And Glass-Steagall automatically breaks that up. And what that would mean is that every financial system in every country in the world would be reverted to a process where speculators all over the world can be brought in, brought to heel if you do this in the United States. So that's a revolution sounds like a whisper. Excellent. Now, the what impact, again, would that have if, if it's implemented here, that would have impact beyond the U.S.? Everywhere. Every single nation in the world. Talk Zimbabwe would no longer have that crazy inflation they have. Greek, the Greeks would no longer have to commit mass suicide, as is what you have going on with you know, Greek women and all this other stuff. The mass unemployment of youth in Spain, all that stuff gets corrected. Hmm. Explain that. Uh, let's okay. take Italy. Let's take Italy. No, let's take Greece, for example. Well, either one of them, because basically Italy is actually a worse situation than Greece, but Greece is one that everybody has heard about because we've had to try to bail out Greece. We bailed them out in 2010, 2011, and, you know, the bailouts don't work because of credit control. Now, watch how this goes. Is there everybody who will understand this? Now, you know, you probably heard, Brother Leroy, about the student loans in America are the most profitable business in America, more profitable than Exxon, $51 mm. billion in profit now. Now, I'm not talking about people paying back the principal on their loans, all of which I would agree with. I have no problem with the idea somebody borrowed $100,000, they ought to pay back $100,000. I do have a problem if they're paying back $100,000 at 6.8% interest or 7% interest on an education loan, where the country is going to benefit from the education of those individuals, but we are going to uh, uh, tag an interest rate onto that? Well, that gives you an example. Now we go to Greece and we go to Italy. And here's what the situation is. These countries have been using something that people call the euro. The euro really was a way of subjugating 
all of the countries in Europe under one banking system. The European Central Bank uh, was the ostensible kind of clearinghouse for this. Then you had this thing called the European Commission. You had other entities. But the main important thing was that there, instead of a French franc or an Italian lira or a Spanish peso or German Deutschmark or a Swedish kroner, hmm, now what you had was this one thing called the euro. And everybody, no matter if you were poor as a church mouse or as rich as a fat cat, you know, you had the same currency and you were supposed to be uh, able to somehow wield that currency equally to a poor man, to a rich man, which, of course, you couldn't do. So, so what happened here was that in Greece in particular, they had a, a strong government-centered government form, a socialist form. When they were essentially went under the euro system, over a period of time this occurred, through globalization, what they began to do is to pulverize the government structure. And since there is no program for reinvestment in industry in Greece or in Italy, for that matter, or other countries, because all of the credit goes to paying what? Interest rates. Interest rates on various financial instruments. It can be mortgages. It can be credit default, all those things that people have heard about, derivatives. They've all heard all these names. But what's important is the flow of credit to industry, to manufacturing, to growing food, to mining, to anything physical is completely eaten up. And they did that. They created the euro to subjugate all those countries, all of them. So when you look at the United States, you see Europe is, is ruled by parliaments. And in parliamentary systems, the government can be overthrown any time. You just dissolve it. It's like why that's why you've had more governments in Italy than there are years in the calendar. If you take the last 60 years, you had over 65 governments. So, so in a country like that, taking Italy as an example, the parliament can be dissolved. It doesn't have, there's no sovereignty in the government there. Just like there's no sovereignty in the government of Greece or sovereignty in the government of Germany. They're parliamentary systems. We have okay. a presidential system, a Congress. So if we act, since the dollar has been used as the either informal or official means to bail out all these countries, if the dollar is suddenly placed back into play as an American currency rather than a global currency, Automatically what happens is that you repudiate the bankers and their debt and their portfolios. Mm. You, just, you just evaporate their debt. And, and, and it's, it's similar to what would happen if I, for example, one day got up and uh, declared, you know what, all those dollars that everybody has out there with the Federal Reserve note on, on them, we're going to recall all of them, and we're going to reissue U.S. Treasury notes, U.S. Treasury notes, and you're going to get this currency. Now, all you got to do is bring the old currency in and account for where you got it. Notice that last thing I said. And we will issue you new currency. You know what would happen if you did that in the United States? You know what would happen to the top 
in this country? Do you have any idea what would occur? You think those people can show up and tell you where their money is? No way. No way, because they've been doing things illegally and criminally. Which may, and that's, what, that's an example of what I mean by the control of credit, where money, the money supply, is leveraged and, and, and controlled by the Congress of the United States under Article 1, Section 8, where the Congress says, hey, listen, we need right now, we got, our people are on food stamps, 11%, we got one out of every five kids in poverty, we have these other problems. So we, under the Glass-Steagall Act, are going to do the same thing that Franklin Roosevelt did in 1933, which is where this all comes from. We're going to go into every bank. We're going to shut them all down for one day, two days. We're going to look at their books. We're going to see what percentage of what they have actually been doing, the business they've been doing, has been legitimate. And if we find that 95% or 85% or 50%, whatever it is, that business is illegitimate, Guess what? We shut it down completely. They don't, do not reopen. We, oh, we keep a, a bank window open in such an entity for things like local functions of paying checks, unemployment compensation, pensions, other things, so that you don't have chaos in the society. But anybody that basically is involved in a form of speculation that does not contribute to the general welfare of the country, well, guess what? You just lost that fortune. We are not going to honor payments uh, to, for, for mortgage-backed securities or all these other things. Mm. Now, now, that may sound to people like it's pie in the sky, except that was done in the United States between March 4th and March 11th of 1933. And some banks that got closed on March 6th never reopened. Never. So what I'm trying to say by pointing this out is that since, you, since everybody in the world was caused to convert their system into a sort of so, a, a, a so-called dollar-denominated reconciliation of all debt in the world, it wasn't really the dollar. It looked like a dollar, but it's like invasion of the body snatchers or like all those zombie movies that people watch, right? It looks human. It looked like a dollar, but there's no soul to it. So if you return a soul to the United States dollar, which is what the Glass-Steagall reenactment would do, if you return the soul to the United States dollar, all of a sudden what happens is the game internationally evaporates just because you did that. And the Chinese, the Russians, India some of the large continental-sized nations, nations in Africa for that matter, that have been declared to be so either, either poor and so on, those nations that have been basing their economy on a solid footing, suddenly they become major players. The United States returns itself to a productive economy, not merely by that act, but that's the first step to doing that. So let's, let's move to student loans and this profit you when when student loans are talked about commonly they're talked about the aspect of students not being able to pay those student loans back now 
where does the figure of $51 billion in profit come from? That's what the Department of Education announced that it had received, which was last week. It's very, you can just take a look at it. Uh, and and uh, in, in contrast, for example, to Exxon, which I think was $50 billion. They beat Exxon by a billion. Okay? So, so this is the profit that they got from student loan collections. Mm. Yeah. I know, yeah, I know, I know what it sounds like, but that, of course, but you see, here's why that's the case, so people understand. A student is no different than a house to these people. A student is no different than a mortgage on a house, to be exact. And by the way, this doesn't even count the credit card debt generated by students, hmm, often as supplemental to attending college. So, so what I, what I, here's why this is relevant. It's, it's because it's easier if people think about credit cards and then come back to student loans. A student is valuable for what he or she contributes to the future of the country. So every student is a, is, is a pre-understood pre investment, or should be, in our future. So actually, the wealth that is generated by students being educated, if, it were, uh, uh, if the students were connected to a productive economy, couldn't even be known until those people get engaged in productive activity. You can't know the value of a student right. until that person actually is incorporated into some form of productive employment in a society which emphasizes that value. Okay. Now, what are these people doing? What these people are doing, they, re they, they reverse it. They say, no, students are not significant, first of all, because we don't have jobs for them when they graduate. Secondly, because we are no longer a productive society, and therefore we are no longer producing products, the physical goods. Uh, and these people are not uh, going to be, are they even being educated to not be interested in doing that? So what is their value? Well, their value is the debt that they can generate because, they're, they're, because if they generate a monetary debt and we, uh, uh, the banks that, is, that loan give the loans, can bundle their debt and you create that debt as a financial instrument that we buy and sell among other banks, then we can use the leverage of student loan debt to create high rates of profit for ourselves and for our posterity. So the, so the student is not significant for the education he receives. He's significant for the debt he accrues. That's what it is. So, so what this demonstrates is it's a fundamental break. Uh, with It's actually a cannibalization of the student population mm. by the society right around it. You move to the point that a student becomes a commodity, a debt commodity. Okay, and so what we can do with this, now, you know, Elizabeth Warren and some other people have been talking about this and saying, okay, let's reduce the, uh, the interest rate to 0.8% and so on. But I say something completely different. I say, wait, no, let us have the students spearhead the drive to reinstate the Glass-Steagall Act. Let us declare all of the speculative debt and therefore, much of the, uh, the, the debt that students accrue is that. 
of which we know from the London Interbank Overnight Rate. In other words, the, the credit card debt and loan debt, all of the interest rates that you pay are decided in London. And they, this used to be used to be able to see this on the on the bottom of your credit card form back when you used to have mm. physical forms. That's why they, that's why so much stuff is done electronically now. So now you don't you don't see it. You know, it's like it's like you know people have that experience of going through a going through the tolls with Easy Pass, right? And so now mm. you're paying thirteen dollars, right? And then seven fifty right. thirteen starts with the bridge, seven fifty for the for the triborough, but you don't feel it. You know, if you were going in your pocket and go and, and having to get twenty dollars twenty one dollars out. Of your, of your pocket every day, you'd realize that in five days of driving around in New York and the Queens, you're paying a hundred dollars. Mm. It used to be back in 1973 what your rent was, but you don't mm. feel that because it's electronic, and it's the same thing that that I'm saying here about the way in which the student let debt works. Is that the idea is that you remove it from its physical impact so that the student is seen as, well, he's irresponsible. He's not paying back his, 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 his loan. Yeah, but who determined the rate at which the loan would be paid? And that's determined by the London Interbank Offered Rate. Why? Because that's the rate all the banks use, and you're getting your loans from the banks. Hmm? You're going to the bank and getting a bank loan. You're not getting a, a, a grant. I mean, some students get some grants from alumni funds and so on, and endowments, sure, that that's true but a lot of people are now getting it from banks. And so the banks have created a farm. Which, this is called debt farming. And what you do, you know, it's like that scene from The Matrix, right, where yeah, the machines have planted all these people, and they're sucking on them for electricity. Well, that's the same thing that you actually have going on in the form of student loan debt. The students are being sucked on for debt. And it's irrelevant whether they actually get a productive job it's only relevant whether they pay the debt and they find a way to pay it. So if they grow dope to pay the debt, that's fine. Sell crack to try to pay the debt, that's cool, as long as you get away with it. As long as they're, what they're concerned about is pay it. And so this is another thing that people need to look at because the, the secret weapon in America today would be, instead of that Occupy Wall Street kind of thing with a protest, no, what you do is you create a movement, which is different than a protest. In a movement, as Bernard Lafayette of Southern Christian Leadership Conference often points out, uh, a protest complains, but a movement has an objective, and it, and it takes steps to achieve that objective. And you don't start a movement until you announce the objective. So the objective, I would say, in this case, it must be reinstate Glass-Steagall, not because that solves all the problems, but it brings all the problems to light. All of a sudden, you see the actual the actual story, kind of like what we're, we're seeing right now around the, uh, the the surveillance of reporters and IRS surveillance of people that you know the, this Tea Party conservative groups. Really, they were looking at everybody. Is what was happening. Yeah, and we haven't gotten to that yet, but that's what we're going to find. Hmm. It's the same ladies thing. They, so, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, our guest online is Dennis Speed of the. LaRouche Political Action Committee, you have the opportunity of asking me a question, join in the conversation, join in the classroom development of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding by calling 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618. This segment is looking behind 
the headlines with individual stories, and, of course, looking at headlines that aren't there that we should be looking at or have an understanding of what's going on. In terms of the the uh, move, the, the, what I understood that there was a move to impeach uh, President Barack Obama and uh, coming from the so-called right wing in the the uh, legislator, what observations does the LaRouche political action have regarding that? Well, there's a few things to understand here. Um, again, let's keep it on the same thing, what people don't know. Well, the thing to understand, first of all, is, yes, the president has done many things, or his administration has done many things, which render him impeachable. Uh, he's done more things that render him impeachable than anything else. But the question is, how did this happen? In other words, what, who, how was this shaped, what, and what are we looking at? We have to look at his trip when he first came into office on April 1st of uh, 2009. He came into office on January 20th, but he made a trip on the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, to London. He visited there with the Queen of England and her consort, Prince Philip. There are pictures of this and so on. And uh, from about that point, uh, the Obama administration was essentially doomed. And now here's what we have. What are we looking at? You know, people talk about something called Benghazi. People talk about something called Syria, war in Syria. And people talk about, uh, you know, Arab Spring. All right. Well, since the period of 2008, 2007, 2008, London had planned and had operated from the standpoint of executing Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. The reasoning behind this and the significance of this to Syria, where I'm, I'm coming to Syria, because it's not really a Syria situation, there's something else. What happened was that Gaddafi had founded something called the Libyan Investment Authority, which had $100 billion, but this was, this was money which was the, uh, uh, denominated in gold reserves, among other things. So this was not speculative wealth in that way. Now, the British wanted to get their hands on it, and uh, Jacob Rothschild and Tony Blair both became board members uh, uh, of the Libyan Investment Authority. Uh, Rothschild was, I believe, put on in 2006, and Blair joined in late 2007 or early 2008 after he left office. Blair was in office for 10 years from 97 to 2007. Now, what occurred with the Obama administration was that the Obama administration was instructed as to what it would do with respect to Africa policy, what people call Mideast policy, but it's really Southwest Asia policy. So Southwest Asia and Africa as a whole were to be effectively recolonized uh, with, in the case of Africa, an, an absolute a public recolonization. In the case of the, of the uh, so-called Southwest Asia, Middle East area, a destruction of every nation by fomenting a form of religious conflict but using weapons to get that religious conflict to be really fueled. So what happened was that Libya was going to be the staging point uh, using weapons that Gaddafi had uh, accumulated over a long period of time and redistributing those weapons 
uh, in conjunction with a large caches of U.S. weapons that would also be, be used for this purpose. Now, where were these weapons to be used? Well, places like Syria, where, for example, the United States supports what's called al-Qaeda uh, and has known that it's supporting al-Qaeda. Uh, Gaddafi, of course, had always said that he was being opposed by al-Qaeda, and he was. Uh, now, in one sense, there's nothing, there is really not an al-Qaeda if you want to talk about a single organization with some kind of unified chain of command and a lot of other stuff. That, that never existed. But what we're referring to generically as al-Qaeda, which involves the Osama bin Laden and related forces from Saudi Arabia, is a, US, is a British asset, I should say, where the United States has a managerial role. And Obama was brought in as a civil servant of the British Civil Service as of April 1st, 2009. Now, you, one may look at the overall candidacy and the way in which he himself was promoted. Yes, that's also part of it. But it became official. He became an official tool of British Civil Service as of that April Fool's uh, trip to London. And so what happened is that the Obama administration illegally and criminally deposed and executed Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, and uh, that was something that could not be done by the British. None of this stuff could be done by the British. The Americans do it. Uh, and what's happened is that this is all now being laid at Obama's doorstep because the British are unhappy with Obama's recent performance, largely because, uh, in effect, what they see is that there's an inability to deliver on their basic international agenda. That is this. They intend and are pursuing a policy of radical depopulation uh, using whether it's health care to do it or using education, whatever, they, whatever that, using war, using famine, you know, whatever means you have available. And the reason for this is not merely that they hate people, which is also true, but from the standpoint of actually having a globally extended imperial domination of the globe, which, you know, has to go into a new phase after the collapse of the Soviet Union back 20 years ago, uh, they thought Obama would be more effective than he's been. So what's happening is that there is a, a kind of process that's been unleashed. Yes, Obama should be impeached, no question about it. But it's also important to put Obama in context, because if you don't, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you don't recognize who controlled his administration from April of 2009, then nothing else makes sense. So there's a headline for you. There's an invisible headline. The United States has been funding, aiding, uh, and increasing funds to al-Qaeda, as has Israel, as has Netanyahu. And the purposes of this are to rule by means of permanent war. Rule by permanent war. And in permanent war, what happens is you finance both sides of the conflict or all three or four sides of a conflict, if you can manage to multiply them. They are, they are subjugated by debt. You eliminate them. And the most important thing is you must never allow stability of governments in Southwest Asia and in Africa. And it's that to which the Obama administration hides itself, and it's that that's about to destroy it. 
now the ruling by way of law by way of war in the chaos they're able to extract the mineral wealth or the agricultural wealth is that mm-hmm. is that part of the picture or the picture? That's part of it. That's part of it. But wealth is not what motivates these people. These people are motivated by race or racial theory. This is the Cecil Rhodes crowd uh, of the 19th century. Cecil Rhodes was something that was, sort of, you know, was once upon a time Rhodesia was named after. Mm-hmm. Um, and the concept of this is an imperial rule uh, which is, 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 is benevolent to those that agree with it and malevolent to those that don't. So the concept is uh, there's too many black and brown and yellow people. Yeah, it's just 1.4 billion Chinese is too many. And 1.3, uh, 1.2 billion uh, various people in India, what's called India, and the Indian subcontinent, that's too many. And we get to 1 billion people in Africa, well, you know, that's, that, that's, that's, a, that's a scandal as far as these people are concerned. So, you know, that's already about 3 billion people too much. So their conception is depopulate Africa uh, just that, and the AFRICOM uh, process is, is part of that. It's not the only element of AFRICOM. The American uh, thing, uh, there's a, there's, because there are differences, there are divisions among some of the military on this. Some of the military see the genocide policy and don't agree with it. But nonetheless, what I'm, trying, what I'm painting as a picture here to understand it is, yes, wealth is important, but wealth is a means. The, the significance here is not wealth. It's dominance. We're talking about the idea of a, if you will, perfidious Albion, the concept that you are, you, they, they, people talk about it as a Freemasonic concept. There are many other ways of referring to it, but it's an anti-God concept in which the pagan orders, uh, in which you have sort of a set of fiefdoms, a set of principalities, they rule the world as a loosely knit oligarchical Unit, unit or union. So you have a kind of a, a union of oligarchies, and you have and you have certain uh, of these of these heads that take turns serving the whole. That's the idea. Okay, there's such a thing as a democracy. There's such a thing as a republic. What was, what's an oligarch? What is oligarch? Yeah, it's an oligarchy. That's what it is. That's what an That's what it is. It's like a loose knit association of a lot of very, both wealthy, and within their domain, very powerful people. For example, uh, you have in China, you have the, the what's called the Mandarin system. It's not the Communist Party that really rules. The, 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 it, 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 it administrates, and there is a certain commitment to that that outlook. Okay, by a lot of people, but you have a Mandarin uh, a rule uh, uh, going back to the ancient times. Uh, you have that is to say that this it's the opposite of all of this, including, by the way, democracies. Is the republic? You see, in a republic, a republic is not merely democratic. And if a bunch of fools believe that snow is black, then that's just the way it is. See. That, 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 that's, that's not what a republic is. A republic says if you, that you have forms of government where the bunch of fools can, in fact, be overruled 
by somebody who is able to actually prove that they are being fools. Now, you've got to be able to prove it, but the concept is that you have to have legal and, in some cases, military means to uh, triumph over foolishness, which, by the way, oligarchs love to finance. Case in point, Rihanna and the other people out there, you can name, you people out there can name those people better than me. You see what's going on with that. You say that's democratic. People like it. But wait a minute. It's being financed by a small financial oligarchy that basically has seized that as what? That is the means to cause African Americans in particular, in this particular case, and other people too, to distrust African Americans. Why? Because I like this. I like how she behaves. I like how Nicki Minaj behaves. So now, okay, so this is my taste. This is who I am inside. Forget Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman. I don't even know the names. They're just names on a, on, in a history book, but I don't use books anymore. So, you know, ir- irrelevant. Hmm? So, so, therefore, by creating the premise that everybody is going along with this, Therefore, you see, democracy becomes what? It becomes tyranny, the tyranny of democracy. And it's often it's usually financed by tyrants. That's how you do that. Now, I'm saying this because I'm trying to give you a, a difference between that and oligarchy. So an oligarch can appear to be democratic. You can have an oligarch who's a communist because an oligarch can finance the communist movement to overthrow whatever government is there then depose the communist movement by something else. Or come in, since he's financed the communist movement, and say, well, hey, obviously I deserve a central position in the government. Or you're not going to mess with who I am because I financed you. So I still control, and that's what you have in Russia, among what are called the Boyar families, B-O-Y-A-R. This goes way back to the 16th century. You always had it during the communist period. That's why Armin Hammer, Armin Hammer, uh, uh, who, who controlled uh, Al Gore's father, is a senator from Tennessee. He used to travel back and forth to the Soviet Union all the time, and people say, you know, why can this guy go in and out? He's an ultra capitalist. And some people say, well, wait a minute, you know, you know, wait a minute. His father was Julius Hammer. Julius Hammer was one of the founders of the Communist Party. He named his his, 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 his named his son Armin Hammer because that's the symbol that's on the box of the baking soda, right? And the baking soda was created by the Socialist Labor Party. And their symbol was the arm, which is muscle, and the hammer, which is machine, arm and hammer. And that was the symbol, a symbol of the Socialist Labor Party. So Julius Hammer, who later was one of the founders of the Communist Party, named his son Arm and Arm and Hammer. See, so, but, but Arnold Manhattan was one of the richest guys in the world. He traveled in and out of the Soviet Union all the time. People say, how could he do that? Because Wall Street financed and created socialist movements, fascist movements, whatever is needed. What, for, for what purpose? Well, again, the concept is, and this is where, again, we come back to Obama and the April 2009 visit to London which is the key to understanding Obama. For everybody that's mystified about what's going on with Barack and how come poor black people can't get a break, they can't even get an interview, and how come Morgan State students 
get told they're the problem, okay, when the president is actually fronting for uh, shipping arms to Syria, killing Gaddafi, and basically running a whole al-Qaeda-based, previously run by the United States as the Afghan Sea and so on, if, uh, a, whole, a whole base of subjugation of Southwest Asia and Africa. Now, that, if, you, if you want to know why that's happening, the invisible headline on that is London controls Wall Street and Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question for Dennis Speed, we're in our concluding minutes with him. You can call 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618. Hit one on your telephone keypad. That lets our engineer know that you do have a question. Now, regarding all of what you have shared with us, I'm coming in from another direction. What, if anything, uh, in terms of movies that you have seen where there are messages within the movies that point to current situations or more recent situations in the U.S. or in the world scene, if any, that you've seen or heard about? I, I just have to be, be, be honest about this. I, I really usually don't see movies until after. Uh, first of all, because I just don't watch them. But secondly, uh, and I'm not, I'm not opposed, I'll put it this way. I have seen various Internet-based documentaries, which I find very interesting because okay. it's clear to me, I'll just put that point out the following, it's clear to me that there are a lot of people out there that have gotten the message and recognized much of or elements of what it is that I'm, I'm describing. Uh, so I, I, well, I'll just say because I'm not going to, you know, try to punt one. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to answer a question I don't, I don't have an answer to. Uh, I'll, I'll, but I'll put it this way with respect to Hollywood. There's one thing to understand. Hollywood itself, there are people out there that want to do something, like we used to get from Oliver Stone back before he got intimidated. And they recognize the following problem. They recognize that now what people are doing is that they are looking for a reference in virtual reality to the reality that they are actually living through. So they need justification from the virtual reality to move on a reality right in front of them. It's like the man that got hit on his way home and then dragged himself up the driveway, unlocked the door, crawled into the T, called in, and turned on his TV to see if he had actually been hit. That's the problem we have. So, 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 so the pro, I, I'm not saying don't watch movies. I'm saying something different, which is that, you know how people often will say, it was like a movie. No, my friend, it was like reality. Hmm. They say things like the tornado in Oklahoma was incredible. No, it was very credible. In fact, it very credibly killed a lot of people. See? Hmm. And, and, and so what I'm, what I'm, I'm not saying, as, and I mean it, I mentioned Matrix before just because that happens to be one of these resonant movies and it's a resonant thing kind of embedded in the national consciousness at this point. Um, and I'm, 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 almost, I'm not – that, that, that's why I referenced it. So I, I, can't, I can't say much to you about okay. particulars of that. 
No problem. We have a questioner on the line. Call or take away your patience. You're on the air. Oh, that's great. Man, uh, you know, you were mentioning these different Internet-based documentaries, and one thing that came to my mind right away was in 96, there was a guy named Bill Still, and he came up with this documentary called The Money Masters, How International Bankers Took Over America. Um, I was wondering if you ever seen that, and if you haven't, you know, make a point to go look for it and look at his proposed solution at the end of the video, The Money Masters, How International Bankers Took Over America, 96, Bill Still. Yeah, uh, actually, Bill I did Still. see that one. Yeah. Go ahead, John. Yeah. Well, no, just to say, and, and by the way, there, there's a there, – let, let's just take one element because that, that is rather, rather exhaustively gone over in that in that documentary. The thing I want to point out, which is my critique of of that documentary and a couple of others that are out there that have a lot of useful um, – I won't even call it details. There's a lot of useful stuff there. We made a revolution in this country which is completely underestimated. It's been simplified uh, in, te- in its teaching because if people recognize what was actually accomplished by it, they'd realize what the actual problem is. Let me explain what I mean. The military campaign was only the beginning. When Washington, Hamilton, Franklin, and uh, a few others... Uh, Governor Morris of New York was another one, began the process of internal improvements in the United States, the canal systems. For example, it's important to know that it was Benjamin Franklin that built most of the water systems in Manchester and other of the cities in London, in England rather, that were said to be the basis of the Industrial Revolution of England. Uh, Washington was ahead of something called the Potomac Company, which was trying to build a canal system to get out from from Virginia into Ohio. Hamilton founded the city of Jersey City, uh, New Jersey, as a company which was intended to extend the Hudson system down through New Jersey and begin a process which was also involved in Patterson Falls. Now, I'm telling you all this because when they ran into the problem that they could not get agreement among the states to unify their forces to stop using tolls and other forms of, of, of prohibitive, like you see with the, with the George Washington Bridge, at the point that they ran into this problem between Maryland and Virginia, they used the problems they ran into to argue for the creation of the U.S. Constitution. And Hamilton argued specifically that the war debt of all the different colonies, which was different in proportion depending on which colony was big and how much money they gave and all that, he said, we've got to pay that as a single nation. We can't walk away from it because we have to honor our debt because we're asking people all over the world to basically invest in a new country. And we just fought a war. We need that investment. So we need to pay it as a United States. So we need to have the power to collect revenue. You wouldn't have an income tax now. There's the power to collect revenue to pay that debt. And the concept involved is when I say, and understand what it was, that's what we were doing. So that was a revolution. 
we had the most advanced banking system ever created, and we took it down. We are now going to try to put that back up. And that's the critique I have because it's all made out like banking is one thing, British banking, Hamilton was a British stooge, no such thing. Our United States Constitution is based on the principle of the general welfare, and Article 1, Section 8 gives us the right to do exactly what Hamilton did. And it was that that created a coup against the British, and it was that that created the means for us to become the most powerful economy the world had ever seen. We have another caller on the line. Thank you for your patience. Your question. How you doing, uh, Brother Leroy and uh, Mr. Speed? Doing very um, well, my I wanna... brother. God bless you. All right. Thank you. Mr. Speed, I want to I wanna ask you a question, and it's more so maybe opinion-based than uh, actual facts. Um, you mentioned the wars and how they are funded from both sides, um, and you spoke on a on a national, international um, platform when you mentioned those wars, and I and I break things down um, to the least common denominator when I think about stuff. There's a lot of situations going on um, abroad and in America like that, and I wanted to know your opinion whether you thought is this a mentality that is taught. Or is this something that's just human nature um, when it comes to people pulling the strings of these types of wars and, and scenarios throughout the nation and the country? Well, now, you uh, thank you for the question. Uh, you happen to have reminded me of one movie I did see, which was called The International. It's out about four or five years ago. And uh, there's a scene in that movie where, uh, you know, it involves various things, but there's an Italian... Um, industrialist who was previously, I think, part of a weapons manufacturing company. Anyway, he's running for prime minister of Italy. And he has this discussion with two agents. One, I think, is American and one is British. And in the con- what's going on is he's trying to give them an idea of how arms sales actually work internationally to foment war. So they're asking him what is the reason for it. And, he, you know, is, is it that somebody's trying to get rid of a particular government? He says no. Then they say, was well, the reason that they're trying to make money? He says no. Now, then the, then the, the investigators are baffled at that point. Well, wait a minute. If they're not trying to get rid of people and they're not trying to make money, what's the point? And the Italian industrialist says, it's the debt. They don't understand what he means. So he says, You see, if someone is fighting a war and they are about to lose, they will they will they will ask anyone to finance it that can help them. The side that wins will be more indebted because it will also have to maintain its position. The side that loses will be heavily indebted because they lost and they have no basis to be able to pay. Therefore, everyone in that society, as a result of the war process, is now controllable through the control of the debt. So the debt is the purpose, and accruing the debt is the purpose. Now, this is important because here's what goes on. As people know from the days of colonialism in Africa, you use religion to justify 
these sorts of ideas. Now, so for example, you say, well, or they say, well, black people are lazy and shiftless. Black people are sexually obsessed. Black people are like children. They're not really capable of running their own affairs and not interested in it. Okay, well, now, you've got to prove that. So when you, if you can manage to parade a group of people on stages, understand. Think about it. Think about this, the terms. I stage right, a show. Think about what I'm saying. A show. I show. I stage a demonstration. I, I stage a show. And what am I showing? What am I portraying? Well, what is Nicki Minaj portraying? What is Beyonce portraying? What is Rihanna portraying? Let's assume they're, they're not even the, the way that they appear, appear to be. But what are they portraying? Now, I named a group of women. You could name all kinds of other people. You can go to Jay-Z, this, that, the other. You can go wherever you want. My point is that you ask the question, and what is, what is it? What would, be the, what would be the answer? That's how we are. That's how I am. Matter of fact, these people will say proudly, because many of them individually are just like what you see. <laughs> so they say, that's how I, I, I was born this way, right? Lady Gaga, born this way. So, so if, if that's the case, that it's part of your nature to be that way, the question is, is that human? My answer is that's not. That's your animal nature. And the animal can't change their nature. But a human being can do that. That's what Malcolm proved. That's what Malcolm's whole point is that through, it was through faith and faith alone that people began to, you know, you know, as he says, I came into the movement with more negative tendencies than anybody. And it was by faith and faith alone that I changed this. See, so what the concept is here, I think, is to make you believe it's human nature. No, that's animal nature. Matter of fact, that's even an a, a insult to animals, what we see in that. But, but that's not human. So I do not believe it's human nature. I, yes, I know that it's contrived. I know that there are people doing it. By the way, in the movie, The International, after this man makes his speech, he goes out to, uh, to the, 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 the couple of investigators, he goes out to speak to a rally, then he gets shot in the head. So, you know, it's, that's sort of the, the, hmm? the message is in that little section there. Dennis, there's a follow-up to that uh, question, uh, caller. Uh, yeah, man, David, you know you're on fire, David. There was there was this old video game NBA Jams, and it was like swish, swish, swish. You're on fire. And let me just recap because if you can go over this in layman terms, I caught a thread in the back of your mind. You 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 hit a, such an important point. You know, after World War II, or even further back, you go off a of gold standard, you get onto a debt-based economy, and people are trained to be consumers accruing large amounts of debt. That's going to create a system where you need more banks. Therefore, you need to educate more bankers. So the cities that the schools to educate the bankers are in are in the largest concentrations of financial capital. So there's six, seven cities around the world. Toronto's one, New York's one, London, Paris, Sydney, Hong Kong, maybe Tokyo, right? What Then, then you have hedge funds in those same cities, and you have people literally gambling or playing with derivatives. So can you can you tell people what are these derivatives and what are the unsustainable patterns with these derivatives because of the debt-based economy? You cannot reduce the debt because the dollar becomes worth zero. You have to have well, debt or the dollar will have no value. 
Exactly, exactly. What what this is, you see, you know, people have heard various terms, and these terms are made alien to them because they're said to be placed in a context uh, which is said to be so complicated that they can't understand it. Give you an example. We use the term debt, but if we use it in a regular sentence, we know what a debt is. I have to pay a debt. You know, this man saved my life. I owe him. Hmm? I have a debt to you. We know what that means. We know what the term trust means when we hear it in a regular sentence. When we hear it in trust fund, some of us don't, aren't really exactly sure what that means. Right? Uh, credit, you know, we say, well, you know, listen, man, you know, I have to give you credit for the fact that you really, truly taught me something I don't know. But now I say credit versus debt. You know, people say, well, I don't understand the credit. Right? Now, and now, therefore, now we go to derivatives. Same kind of thing. People say, well, a derivative, this is really weird. And, of course, you've, many people who have tried to go online to find these things, you know, you just get more confused because uh, they, 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 they involve formulas and they involve uh, uh, different ways of trying to calculate a leverage point on an interest rate uh, da, so, or even a change in the future orientation. of, and, and so it goes into all the stuff. So people are supposed to get all bent out of shape. But a derivative it's just it derives from something. It comes from somewhere. So the more interesting thing about a derivative is what does it derive from? So let's take, for example, people know, okay, there, were, there was a mortgage crisis. Okay, well, first you know you got a house. Fine. Let's assume. Now, actually, in this whole game, they had four and five and six mortgages on the same house. They came out, actually, in, in Cleveland in a, in a court case back in 2009, late 2009 to early 2010, that some of the banks and some of these other companies were – and now they had a way of doing that, which is, of course, people are moving in and out of the house, and if you could get a rapid rate of turnover, there was, there was a way of arguing uh, more, that more mortgages had been, uh, had been contracted uh, than, uh, than might than, – than, than, and you could you – could, that's how they began the process. Eventually, they just had more mortgages on one property. How, how do you do this? Okay, well, let's, let's go into this. We're not going to go into the details of it because that's exactly what I want to stay away from. But I'll tell you, they, 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 here's, here's the thing that a lot of people never get. Let's say one house has one mortgage. It's legitimate. But then they were doing this thing they called bundling. What do you mean by bundling? It means, well, in the block I'm on right now, what do I got, like 35 houses on the block? Okay, all the, all the houses, is mortgages are worth so much. Let's say every house was worth, just for purposes of us, $100,000. So that's a lot. But let's say it's a quarter million. And say, say there's 30 houses. So that's $7.5 million, right? Okay, now I bundle this, and I'm going to sell an instrument, a financial instrument, you see, which is called a mortgage-backed security. Well, that's a derivative right there because that derives from the actual mortgages on the actual houses, right? But now I'm buying and selling securities, and I'm saying that these are worth more or less. What it gives them their value? Well, people are paying the mortgage every month. And if they're not paying, somebody else is getting in line to pay, even if they're not paying. See? So they get kicked out. They actually, that's how it works, right? So people say, oh, yeah, fine. But wait a minute. The security, we notice the term, security is as insecure as you can get, which is what everybody found out five years ago. But they were called securities. So 
So now I go to the local libra- uh, person in a local school district in Akron, Ohio, or some city like that, right? And these are people, you know, you got six people on the school board, five people or whatever, and they got a treasurer or whatever, uh, and a school system, school system, I mean. And so now they, somebody comes in and says, listen, I got these instruments, they call securities, but I, and they have mortgages, right? but, you know, I realize that this security might not appeal to you because you might say to me, you know, maybe something can go wrong with the trading and the buying and selling of these securities. So I don't want you to invest in that. I'm going to have you invest in something that's really surefire. You cannot possibly lose your principal, and that is the insurance on the security. We're going to have insurance to make sure that the security can't go down. It cannot, it not, cannot, cannot collapse, see? So we're going to invest you not in the security because that might fail. You're right. We're going to invest you in the insurance on the security, and that was called a credit default swap. It meant that if your security fails, it defaults, then we swap the insurance for the value of the security, see? So this means that like you're like two steps back. You're not in the mortgage. You're not on the security. You're on the credit default swap. You are so far protected, it's impossible for you to lose your principal. That's what they told those people, right? So people put their money in this stuff saying, well, you know, I did that because I wanted to make sure we did not lose our principal. And that was the most speculative thing there was because now what happened was they started buying and selling right, in what was called the derivatives market. See, this is a derivative of the security, which is a derivative of the mortgage. Mm. It's a second derivative. That's what this mm. stuff is, man. See, this stuff is really simple. It is all illegal. It should all be criminal. It's merely legal because you got a corrupt government system that went, did away with Glass-Steagall back in 1999. Otherwise, all this stuff would be illegal. All of it would never have happened. And although they tell you, and President Obama says it, well, no, if uh, Glass-Eagle had been in effect, that wouldn't have stopped AIG from going under. Well, wait a minute. Here's the idea. AIG was a private insurance company. What Glass-Eagle would have stopped is you even considering bailing them out. You couldn't do that because Glass-Eagle had Federal Deposit Insurance Corporations for banks. AIG wasn't a bank. It was an insurance company. There's no way that you could have ever positioned the United States government, uh, under the, in this case the Federal Reserve, to bail out AIG. Now, the Federal Reserve is not part of the U.S. government. Absolutely true. But what I'm trying to show you here is what they were saying and what the old president was saying, even before he wasn't president then, but he supported it. And Bush was saying it, of course, but of course we all know Bush didn't know what he was saying. But the point of the thing is that what they were doing was they were endorsing something. They were endorsing, to just so you have an understanding of it, everybody out there listening to me, it's like if you had a business that you were running and it was a big business and you messed up, everybody in the United States is supposed to bail you out. Now, you know you were taught your entire life by your parents, by school, by church. No, you do this on your own, and you make your own venture, 
and right. that's why you get the profit, blah, 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 right? And you suffer the loss, right? And instead, that's what they did. They bailed these people out. So so I think, I hope I just made made that clear to everybody. Uh, Dennis, and, and I wanted to, yes. Dennis Reed, um, I just want to be clear. This is a quick answer, if I'm not. A derivative is literally something that is a, is a, an instrument, I'm going to use that term, derived from, a, from another instrument. Right. So it's a side the, bet, man. I'm sorry. It's a side bet. It's like I'm over in the oh, alley, right, oh, and, and, I, and I'm doing my thing, right? And, you. And, and, you know, somebody, right, you know what I'm saying? Everybody knows what that is. Two guys playing wow. poker, right? And somebody says, man, he's going to kick his, right? The other guy says, no, 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 you don't understand what's going on. Said, no, no, you don't understand what's going on. Yeah, oh, you want to put some money on it? Okay. Oh, that's what it is. Side <laughs> bet. A side bet. Now, Dennis, we're at the end. How do people connect with Dennis Speed or the LaRouche Political Action Committee? And um, also leave us with some references or some articles that folks can go to and verify what they've heard you say this evening. All right, well, let's see. First of all, you can go to the LaRouche uh, PAC site for a lot of background stuff, a lot of stuff on the international situation particularly, because there's all, stuff, all kinds of things we didn't go through here. So that's one place also, LaRouche Pub, LaRouche Publications, because that has a lot of longer articles that you can, you can get that way. If people are looking for me, I have no problem. You can try to hit me up at uh, Dennis, H, Dennis H. Speed at Yahoo.com, Dennis H. Henry Speed at Yahoo.com. You can do that. Or you try to friend me on Facebook if you want to do that. That's that. You look me up, Dennis Speed. Um, and in terms of references, uh, I, I think that the basic, there's two things I'd like people to do. I think people should get the, the, the Constitution and read it carefully. Article 1, Section 8 particularly, but read through it. I'm not saying that just as a kind of a throwaway line. It's important because of what's happened with this Glass-Steagall thing. I think you should check out Senator Tom Harkin's uh, website. Um, I don't know whether they've posted this thing about 985 yet, but you should, should actually ask him about it. They should have it up there. Um, hmm. Senate Bill 985. I want everybody to go. Actually, there is some. Everybody should look up Senate Bill 985 and House Resolution 149. Well, it's just, that's Marcy okay. Kaptur, K-A-P-T-U-R, Marcy Kaptur. That she's Ohio, Democrat. Uh, she's the House of Representatives. So she's the Congresswoman, Marcy Kaptur. And then Senator Tom Harkin, Democrat of Iowa, uh, Bill, Senate Bill 985. That, that you want to look at so you can see for yourself exactly what those two bills say. Um, and I think that, that otherwise... Um, I'm going to leave it right now at that, but if people want other information, Brother Leroy, they should contact you just, just for, for me. Any questions that people have that we can get to tonight, and, uh, and I will uh, prepare uh, a, a bit more on the references side uh, because I've been doing a lot of stuff really with newspapers and periodicals and stuff, okay. but not a lot. Of, you know, I have other things oh. I would want to recommend. Right. Well, we're at the end, the very end. Dennis Steve, thank you very much. May God continue to bless you and your family. And thank the you, audience sir. out there, thank the, uh, the audience for your support. We'll be back on uh, Brother Leroy and another segment of the Communicators this coming Saturday evening at 8 
p.m. Eastern. That's right after Minister Farrakhan gives his presentation on www.noi.org, the time and what must be done. He goes off at 8, switch to us at the Keys 107 on Blog Talk Radio. May God continue to bless each and every one of you. By the final call newspaper and other black media. Peace. Airing Saturdays at 7 p.m. With your host, Brother Leroy. Broadcasting from the heart of Harlem, USA. 